You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is The Struggle is Real, Episode 6, with Loami Richardson. Welcome to Amazing Discoveries. My name is Loami Richardson, Evangelist for Salt Outreach. And what we are doing is going through the series entitled The Struggle is Real, and in this portion of our series, we're going through the seven steps of completion. In our previous steps, we discuss how Christ convicts us of our sin, not so that way we can flee away from him, but so that way we can flee to him. And so just to quickly review, we know that the first step in the process of Christ allowing us to be complete in him is to be drawn by his love. Christ is constantly wooing us with his love, and it's through the cross that we're able to see his love that he has for you and I. Our job, because there is a uh, cooperation that you and I must, must uh, do with Christ, is that our job is not to resist his drawing. Once we come to the cross, once we understand his love for us, it is at the cross that we are then convicted of our sin and our need of, his right, uh, of righteousness and a judgment to come. The reason why Christ convicts us of our sin and of a judgment is to come, not so that way we can feel helpless, but that way we can be awakened to our need of knowing Jesus then our job is to simply acknowledge the guilt that the Spirit has placed in our hearts and plead for His, uh, for, for his righteousness. And so we're seeing that through this Bible, especially what we just uh, talked in our previous presentation in Genesis chapter 3, when guilt entered into the heart of Adam and Eve after sin entered into the world, instead of Adam and Eve running to God, instead they ran away from God. And we're seeing that God's first response after sin entered into the world is, where are you? The Father is constantly seeking us and wondering where we are. So when we experience guilt, we, un we come to the conclusion from the Bible and from the spirit of prophecy that, we, that God places guilt in our heart, not so that way we can run away from him, but he gives, it, he gives it to us as a gift so that way we can flee to him and he can alleviate and, and, and set us free from that bondage of guilt. And so what we're going to be discussing today is step three, which is he will then ultimately give us uh, the spirit of repentance. But before we begin, let us bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, we just want to thank you again for this opportunity to study your word. And Lord, the same request I've been asking throughout this presentation is the same request now. Hide me behind the cross. Let your son be uplifted. Let all men, women, and children be drawn unto him. And the Lord, we pray for your spirit to give us wisdom and understanding as we discuss this very important topic. We love you. We thank you. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we see step number three is that God's part is that he will give us repentance. Did you know you would hear many people tell you, you must repent for your sins, but did you know that we can't even repent for the things that we've done? That's actually a gift from God. Notice what Acts chapter 5 verse 31 states. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So notice that in Acts chapter 5 verse 31 that God has exalted the son of man, Jesus Christ, to his right hand and it's Jesus that gives us repentance and gives us forgiveness of sin. So you and I cannot even ask God to, uh, give, uh, we can't even repent for the sins. It is a gift that God gives in us to ultimately ask God to, uh, that God gives us a desire to repent from our sins. I want you to notice what Selected Messages Volume 1 states. By the manifestation of his what? 
of his love. You see, brothers and sisters, you got to understand that this whole presentation isn't saturated in understanding God's love for you. It is only by understanding God's love for us that any of these steps will make sense. And so we see by the, the, by the quotation, it states, it's by the manifestation of his love, by the entreating of his spirit. Again, we're seeing this uh, happening over and over again. Christ and his spirit, they work hand in hand in, 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 in unity to try to save humanity. By the manifestation of his love, by the entreating of his spirit, he woos men to what? To repentance. For repentance is a gift of God. You can't even repent for your sins. It is something that God gives in us. It is a gift that he gives us that allows us to repent from our sins. And, in wh and whom he pardons, he first makes penitent. In other words, he makes us feel bad for what we do. So we see that repentance and repentance is simply a turning away from sin. God gives us this gift of repentance and it's only by his love that is manifested and his spirit that is infused in our hearts that allows us to understand our need to repent from our sin. And notice what repentance gives. Notice what it says in Steps of Christ. Repentance includes sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. Understand repenting isn't just, well, you know, I'm my bad. I messed up. I won't do it again. No, no, no. It's actually feeling sorrow feeling bad for what you did. And then ultimately that sorrow will lead you to turn away from that sin, never to commit it anymore. Notice what it states. We shall not renounce sin unless we see its sinfulness until we turn away from it at heart. There will be no real change in the life. So understand that repentance is a gift that God gives to you and I, and repentance is simply a turning away from the life that I used to live. But repentance must have a true, true repentance comes from having sorrow for the sin that you committed. And until you and I is able to see sin for what it really is, you and I will never renounce it or turn away from it. It must begin in the heart and Christ's great desire, his first work is constantly the heart. He's wooing us to his love. He's, 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 he's imbuing his spirit into our hearts. He's constantly working in our hearts so that way we can ultimately come to a point where we turn away from our sins, never to commit that sin again. For we understand that it's our sins that crucified our Lord. And for love for him is why we don't want to commit any more sin. And so there will be no real change in the life unless we see the sinfulness of sin, the ugliness of sin, what sin has got done to God, what it's doing to us, and what it's doing to the world. And this is what repentance, true repentance, really means. It having a sorrow for it and turning away from it. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins. So I want you to understand that in this passage, there are some conditions that you and I must meet before we can receive forgiveness for our sins. Number one, we must humble ourselves. Why? Because our hearts are full with pride. We will never admit that we ever do anything wrong. So in order for us to actually ask God to forgive us, we must do a whole lot of humbling before we can get to that point. So step number one, we see that we must humble ourselves. But number two, as we humble ourselves, we pray. We say, Lord, this is who I am. I realize my sin has separated me from you. I have committed this sin time and time again. I am tired of committing it. 
please help me. Then at that moment, step number three tells us that we must seek his face. I mean, study his word. What are his promises? What would God promise that he will do in those moments where we are asking God to forgive us? We have to look at those promises and see what is God willing to do in those moments where we have a desire that we want to turn away from that sin. And then number four, we see that we must turn away from our sin. You see, the power of the gospel isn't just to forgive us for our sins, but God empowers us to live a life that we can be free from sin. So again, the four conditions that we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 is number one, we must humble ourselves. Why? Because our hearts are full of pride. Then we pray, tell God who we are, what we have done, and ask God to forgive us. Then we seek his face. We read his word. We try to claim his promises. And then we turn away from our sin and by God's grace, never to commit that sin ever again. And then notice the blessings that God says he will give to us. Then he says, God will hear us. Why would God have to wait till we humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from our sins before he will hear us? It's because the Bible states that his hand is not short that he may not save, or it's ear not heavy that he can't hear, but it's our iniquities or our sins that separates us from him. So Christ has to remove the barrier between himself and us and remove the sin so that way he can hear our prayers. And then once he hears our prayers, the beautiful promise found in 2 Chronicles is that he will forgive us. Oh, God says he is willing and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this process ultimately allows us not to make excuses for our sins. We come to God and says, Lord, this is who I am. And regardless of the circumstances and the situation around me, I realize that I've committed this sin against you. And this is what allows, this is ultimately how we are able to develop a humble spirit is when we come to God in prayer, realizing we're not making any, any excuses as to why we committed that sin. Notice what Steps to Christ, page 40 states, true repentance will lead a man to bear his guilt himself and acknowledge it without deception or hypocrisy. So understand true repentance comes from a place where it says, I'm not making any excuses, God. This is what I did. And I did it because I wanted to do it, not because of the circumstances around me, not because the devil tempted me, not because my aunt or my mother or my spouse or whatever uh, got me frustrated and I committed this sin. No, 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 Lord. No excuses. This is who I am. I come to you acknowledging my guilt. No deception, no hypocrisy. I did it. I committed that guilt and that sin. So let's quickly review. Let's quickly review as to what we just discovered uh, or what we just unpacked here. What repentance is. Repentance, number one, is a gift. God gives us the gift of repentance because you and I have no desire to turn away from our sinful ways because our life, uh, we love our sin. If we didn't love our sin, we wouldn't struggle with it, right? That's why we entitled it The Struggle is Real. The struggle is that you and I are constantly battling against what God desires for us to do and what we want to do. So the fact that we want to even turn away from our sins, the fact that we are even coming to God in the first place is all a gift from him. So repentance, first and foremost, is a gift from God. But number two, it includes a sorrow for sin. It's understanding, I did this. These are the consequences of my actions. And because I made this choice and this decision to commit the sin, I see the results of it and I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to see people suffering. I don't want to suffer anymore. But most importantly, I don't want to see my God that is in heaven who loves me to continue to suffer based on the sins that I commit. And once we have a sorrow for sin, step number three is that we then turn away from our sin. We don't want to commit that sin anymore. 
Once somebody experienced true repentance, they, they don't want to commit that sin anymore. And then, brothers and sisters, number four, we cannot turn away from our sin unless we see its sinfulness, unless we see what it, sin truly does to us, what is done to Christ and what it's doing to the world. Unless we see its sinfulness, we will never turn away from that sin. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why it's so important for us to study God's word and see what is sin. How can Christ convict us so that way we can get to a point where we're no longer committing that sin, but by God's grace, having victory over it. But I want you to notice what true repentance is. True repentance bears the guilt, acknowledging that this is what I did. I'm not making excuses. I'm coming to you feeling bad, feeling guilty, feeling ashamed. That's what true repentance is. Once you have that feeling and that emotion in your heart, that truly bears, uh, that truly, that's a sign that you are experiencing true repentance. But acknowledging his or her wrongs in committing that sin is another indicator of what true repentance is. You see, even when Judas betrayed his Lord, we see that he ultimately threw the 30 pieces of silver after he betrayed Christ. But we see that true he wasn't truly repentant for what he did because he didn't, this, uh, his guilt didn't allow him to run to Christ. Instead, he ran and he, and he found a solution for himself and he hung himself. So true repentance will allow us to come to God and say, Lord, I have messed up. And I believe that if Judas would have even, even after Judas betrayed Jesus, if Judas would have ran to Christ and says, Lord, I'm sorry I betrayed you. I believe it with all my heart that Jesus would have said, I forgive you. Go and sit no more. And that's what true repentance is. It bears the guilt. It says, man, I messed up. I don't want to do it anymore. But it's also acknowledging his and her wrongs. And brothers and sisters, how are we able to experience true repentance? How are we able to see our wrongs? It's no other than looking at the cross. It is at the cross is where we see what our sins has done to him. That's why everything must be centered around Jesus, around the cross and his great sacrifice for you and I. It's at that moment where we see his love for us. It is there that I'm convicted. It is there that he gives me the gift of repentance that gives me a desire to turn away from my sins. Brothers and sisters, every teaching, every study must be centered around the cross. The cross is of vital importance for us to understand not only our need of him, not only seeing our condition, but understanding his plan to save us from our condition. And so we see that this God's part. God says that he will give us repentance. It is a gift. And our part is to confess and to forsake our sins and to give him our one desire. And so that's what we're going to be discussing right now. Our job is to confess, forsake our sins and then give them the one thing that he desires from you and I, which is our hearts. I want you to notice what Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 states. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So in other words, that word covereth simply means making excuses. So he who does not make excuses for his sins shall prosper, but whosoever first, uh, uh, whoever confesses it, whoever forsakes his sin, Christ says he will then give them mercies. So when we come to God and we ask God to forgive uh, for forgiveness for our sins, we should not be coming to God and making excuses as to why we've committed that sin because we will not prosper if we do that. But if we confess and we forsake it, we see that the Bible promises that he will have mercy for you and I. I want you to notice what Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 931 states. Christ is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him in faith. Notice what he will do. He will cleanse them from all defilement if 
they will let him. Again, it's based on our willingness to surrender our hearts to God so that way he can do the work that he promises that he said he will do. But if they cling to their sins, they cannot possibly be saved for Christ's righteousness covers no sin unrepented of. So Christ is willing and able to save to the utter extreme who comes to him believing that he loves them and believing that he will always be there and never forsake them. Christ promises that he will cleanse us from all of our sins, every mistake that we've ever made, even the sins that we're struggling with now, if we simply allow God to do it for us. But that's the condition. If we decide to hold on to that sin, that sin that the Spirit is convicting us that we must surrender, whatever that sin may be, there is no way possible that God can save you in that condition. We talked about this before. One sin hold, uh, cherished and hold on to, uh, held on to will contaminate the whole entire being. One percent of rat poison will contaminate a whole bottle of water. Christ's mission, according to Matthew verses 1 verse 21, is that he came to save us from our sins, not in our sins. So there's no way that God can save us as we continue to hold on to our sins. And Christ's righteousness is not something that he covers us as we have unconfessed sins, but it's something that works from within that allows his righteousness to then be seen outwardly. You see, what you and I must do is that we must take time to reflect about the sins and the shortcomings of our lives. And as the Spirit reveals to us our sins, then we can go to the Father about our struggles and our shortcomings. And this is why he's our intercessor. This is why he's familiar with our infirmities. He is our friend. And brothers and sisters, I'll be honest. At first, I didn't have this right view of God. I looked at God as somebody who was far distant, someone who was looking at me and, and, and ready to zap me and condemn me for all of the things that I did. And, and if I didn't get my act together, then there's no way that I was going to be able to be a part of his heavenly kingdom. But once I understand that Christ loves me, that Christ is long-suffering, that Christ is willing to do, to, uh, ready, willing and ready to go to the uttermost and go to the other ends of the earth to save me, and understand that he was my friend. I talk to God differently now. I go to God and said, Lord, I committed this sin. And I'm not going to lie. I, I like it. I realize that I love this sin more than I love you. And Lord, though this may be my condition now, I know that your word says that you can give me enmity, a hatred, a disgust for this sin. I can't do it. There is no way I can cleanse my heart. But God, if you're my friend, if you say that you're willing to do it, then I believe in your word. And regardless of how I may feel, I believe that you can do it. And you said that your word will not come back to you void. And that's how we have that relationship, that communion with God. Notice what Christ's object lesson says. It says there are many who try to reform by correcting this or that bad habit. And they hope that this way may become Christians. But they are beginning in the wrong place. Our first work is with the heart. Christ wants your heart because he understands if you give him his heart, then he will do the rest of the work for you. He will continue to work with you. He will abide with you. He will convict you of the things that you must surrender. And as we have a choice and say, man, because I love God and I realize this thing is separating me from him for love for him, I'm going to give it to him for I trust him for I know that his his intentions are only good for me. And so we see that many of us say, well, if I can start dressing right, eating right, if I can start watching the right things, uh, uh, associating with better friends, then all of a sudden 
I can be right with God, but we're starting and beginning in the wrong place. I don't know. I can tell you countless times how many times I've gone to series uh, 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 churches and, and, and pastors will sit there and tell you, you must repent for your sins. And you're sitting there. Yeah, I must repent. But I don't even know how to repent because in reality, I love doing what I'm doing. And until I understood that, hold up, repentance is a gift that God gives to me. Then I had to ask God, Lord, give me a repentant heart. Then all of a sudden we must be right with God. All of a sudden, yeah, I do have to get right with God. So what must I do to be saved? As we read in the story of the rich young ruler and the Nicodemus, what must I do? And so we start trying to correct external habits, but we're starting at the wrong place because if God can work in our hearts, then all of the external matters will just come secondary. You see, we do not make any changes in our lives until we come to Jesus first. We must fall in love with him first. Then ask, Lord, what can I do to express my love to you? That is a process. But with so many times we're trying to show that we love God or trying to prove God that, that, we're, that we're appreciative of his gift instead of asking, Lord, I don't know how to love you, but I know you love me. Teach me how to love you and what can I do to show you how much I care? And so this is why Proverbs 23 verse 26 says, my son, give me thine heart. As you can see in the picture, it says, it's not much, but it's all I have. Jesus says, that's all I ever wanted. I don't want nothing more. I can do the, re I can do the reforms in your life. I can change your taste buds. I can change your, your habits and your lifestyle. I can do all of those things. Just simply give me your heart. And that's God. That's all that God wants. He wants our hearts. And my question is, are you willing to give it to him? Are you willing to give him and surrender the one thing that he desires? What he went through with Gethsemane and the agony of the cross for, would you give him your heart? You see, as we entitled this series, The Struggle is Real, I want you to notice what Steps of Christ, page 43 states. The whole heart must be yielded to God or the change can never be wrought in us by which are to be restored to his likeness. Notice, by nature, we are alienated from God. Our natural condition is that we are separated from God. We don't care about God. We don't care anything about God. We don't care anything what he asks us to do. We are naturally alienated from God. So the fact that you're even watching this program, that even the fact that you have a desire to pray, even the fact that you have a desire to open your word, understand that is God's gift to you because our natural inclination is to be separated from God, alienated. We don't want anything to do with them. Notice why. Because we are held fast in the snare of Satan, taken captive by him at his will. God desires to heal us, to set us free. But since this requires an entire transformation, a renewing of our whole nature, we must yield ourselves wholly to him. Notice how this quotation concludes. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that has ever fought. Not World War I. Not World War II, not the war in Korea. Brothers and sisters, the greatest warfare is the battle against you and God. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that you and I will ever fight. And this is why the struggle is real. Because we're constantly battling against what I desire to do and what God is asking me to do. But notice how it concludes. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God, requires a what? A struggle. It requires a struggle. So many times I talk to young people, so many times I minister to people and they're like, oh, evangelist, pastor, elder, Lord, I mean, I just, I'm struggling. 
I'm like, well, praise the Lord. And you kind of see their faces. They're like, what? I'm not, I'm struggling. Did he not hear me? Yes. Praise God you're struggling because the struggle is an indication that God is working in your hearts. So many times we look at the struggle as something that, 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 that isn't of God. But the reality is the fact that you're struggling is an indication that there's something living in you that desires to do something more. Because and the truth of the matter is our nature is that we are sold under sin and we are slaves to sin. We are dead to ourselves. And so the fact that we are struggling to do something good is an indication that God is working in your heart. So don't ever think that the fact that you're struggling is a bad sign. Praise God that you're struggling. Now, if you're not struggling, that's a whole different conversation, a whole nother series that we must do. But brothers and sisters, the struggle is real, but it's a beautiful struggle because the struggle allows us to understand that there is something in me that desires to do what God is asking me to do. So it does require struggle. My, 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 my selfish inclination, what my heart desires, is in conflict with God, what God desires of me. And so it's going to require struggle. But the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed to holiness. And that word holiness simply means to be set for holy use, to set apart for holy use. This is why Ephesians chapter 4 states the following. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what we're seeing from the Bible, it says that we must put on our old nature, put away the former ways of how we used to conduct ourselves when we are facing different life battles, but instead put, uh, allow the spirit to dwell in you and put on the new nature, a nature that is created after the likeness of God and battle and, and face the temptations and the battles we face every single day in, in the method of how the spirit will do. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some, uh, some points here. So the old nature is simply this. It is the former manner of life, the life that was corrupted by lust. And every, every sin that you and I have ever been tempted with or fallen into falls under these three major categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is what we saw Adam or uh, Eve face as she was tempted to eat of the fruit that God told them not to eat. There was, uh, she was tempted, the lust of the flesh, the desire to be like God, the lust of the eyes. We see that once the fruit was good for her and pleasure for her to eat, and the pride of life, her desire to be like the Most High, all of those three temptations were formulated as she went to eat of that fruit that God told them not to eat. So understand, the old nature is the former manner of life, the life that was corrupted by lust. Now the new nature is this. It is the likeness of God, which is righteousness. That word righteousness can be simplified as, simply, uh, as simple as right doing and holiness, which is simplified as being set apart for holy use. So we see the new nature is the likeness of God, which enable us to do what is right. And as we're doing what is right, we are then set apart for a use that glorifies God. The perfect way to, uh, to show this illustration is through this little cartoon picture here. You see, the Bible tells us, put off the old nature, put on the old nature. So I'm just going to ask you some very logical and quick questions. If I have hate, envy, pride, and lust in my heart, is there any way that I can have patience? The answer is no. Can I have pride and at the same time be humble? The answer is no. Can I be meek and still be envious of other people? The answer is no. Can I bring unity while I still have hate for other people? 
If I had, if I hate people because they're a Democrat or a Republican or whatever, or white, black, whatever uh, uh, labels that we may use, if I have hate for them, can I truly bring unity? The answer is no. So what Christ is saying, there's no way that these two characters, these two natures can work hand in hand. One must go. Either we're working through envy, through hate, through lust, through pride, or we're working through the spirit, which brings unity, meekness, patience, and humility. Those two cannot go hand in hand. So we must put off our old nature, which is hate, lust, envy, and pride, and put on the new nature, which is meekness, humility, unity, and patience. And so this is why Desire of Ages states the following. The Christian life is not a modification or an improvement of the old, but a transformation of nature. There is a death to self and sin and a new life altogether. So let me give you some examples. If I used to eat meat, and I became a vegan, a plant, adopted a plant-based diet, but I still have pride in my heart. Is that a modification or a transformation? The answer is, it's a simple modification. I transform my eating habits, but I still possess pride in my heart. How about this? How about uh, I was learning that Sunday isn't the right day to worship. I go to church on Saturday night, right? But I still struggle with lust in my heart. Question, is that a modification or, an, or, or a transformation? The answer is, it's a modification. How about this? How about if I was smoking before and now I quit smoking, but I still have prejudice in my heart towards people? Is that a modification or is that a transformation of nature? Okay, how about this? How about I, I, I used to watch uh, certain things on television, uh, I chose entertainment, but now I'm actively involved in the church, right? But I still have resentment in my heart about the things that happened to me as a child. Is that a modification or is that a transformation of nature? Do you see how we begin with the outward experience and not in the heart? Christ wants us not to modify. See, let me backtrack. Let me say this. There are a lot of Christians who have, are more modified than being transformed by his love. We have a lot of modified Christians, but not transformed Christians. You see, once, once we understand the love of God and that love transform our hearts, we no longer struggle with those sins anymore. Yes, let me take that back. We will struggle, but we can have victory over those struggles. Amen? So those examples given, what we tend to do is to modify our behavior and not allow God to transform our nature. This is why it states in Romans 6 verse 11 that it says, you also must consider yourself dead to sin, but alive in God in Christ Jesus. So we must be dead to our former life and being alive in the new life that Christ is willing to give to you and I. So what does it mean to be dead to self? Notice, it means giving up my right to selfishness and worldly pleasures. But it also means to be given up my rights to use Satan's methods to fight our battles. So what does it mean to be dead to sin and be dead to self? It means, listen, I give up my right to looking out for myself. I want to look out for others. It means giving up the right for me to pursue all of the pleasures that gives me joy instead of and now replacing it and being a joy and a pleasure for others. It's also giving up my right to use Satan's methods to fight my battles and temptations. What do I mean by that? Notice, <clears throat> the flesh battles every Every trial that we face, we either battle it with the likings of the flesh. So we battle it with envy, with impatience, with irritation, with resentment, with anger, with jealousy, with lust, with hatred, with rebellion, with frustration, as well as laziness. You see, we are faced with different battles every single day. And when we go to work, we see a co-worker of ours who 
may have slack off, not that educated, doesn't do good work, but you know you're educated, do good work, and, and you're a model citizen, a good, co a good worker. And, 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 and lo and behold, it comes a time for, that for you to get a, a promotion, and the person who doesn't do any work, who's lazy, who, 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 who has no education whatsoever, who hasn't even been at the company as long as you have, all of a sudden gets that promotion. The at that moment, we have an option to either, what, 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 how are we going to fight that temptation? We usually fight it with the flesh. We get envious. Does it call for us to be envious at that moment? Yeah, because that's what our carnal nature desires. How about impatience? When we're driving on the road, long road trip, and the kids in the back seat, are we there yet? 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 What, 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 what comes up from out of you? The flesh says, ah, be quiet. I don't want to hear another word. We get there when we get there. Impatience, irritation, right? This is how we battle the, 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 the temptations and everyday struggles. Frustration, rebellion, hatred. But when we are infused with the spirit, we all of a sudden in that moment where the kids are asking us, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Instead of fighting that battle through impatience, we're now asking the spirit to fight our battles for us. And we're saying, Lord, teach me to be patient. And there we see God gives us a peace before the storm. It is so interesting that sometimes when we ask God for patience or God give us, a, 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 you know, especially patience, because that's something that I need myself. When we ask God, Lord, give me patience. We think that it's some, a genie in the bottle we rub and he gives us three wishes. But do you know what God does? God sends us the most irritating person that we can possibly imagine. And he sticks us in. A, he sticks that person in a room with us for eight hours a day. And God says, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to teach you how to be patient in those moments. But not only that, in those moments where it calls to be rude, the spirit teaches us to fight those battles with kindness. In those moments where we, when we want to fight that battle with uh, 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 cutting this person off, Christ says, listen, I need you to forgive them. In those moments where you just want to yell and, and snap, Christ says, I want you to fight this battle with prayer. In those moments where you've lost all hope, Christ says, I want you to fight this battle with faith. When in those moments where you are this, uh, that you've lost all hope, Christ says, I want you to hope in me. Fight this battle with me. But most importantly, everything that we do, brothers and sisters, must be rooted in love for Christ. Because out of all of these things, the greatest of these is love. And so we're seeing that how we deal with certain situations indicates who is taking control of our nature at that moment. Are we battling our fights or temptations or our battles through the former lusts of the flesh? Or are we now developing a new nature through the power of Christ and battling those, spirit, uh, battling those uh, temptations or those situations through the spirit of God? You see, when I give up my right, regardless what people may do to me, I give up my right to be impatient at that moment. I give up my right to be irritated. I give up my right to be agitated when others don't do the things that I uh, don't do it the way that I want them to do. I give up my right in those moments where the flesh says, face this battle by being impatient. You ask the Lord, Lord, at this moment, not my will, your will. Let the spirit take over. And in those moments, I'm giving Christ the permission to say, you fight this battle for me and use your method of patience, kindness, forgiveness, prayer, faith, hope, and love. This is why sons and daughters, page 105 states, put on the whole being into the Lord's hand soul body and spirit and resolved be his loving consecrated agency moved by his will controlled by his mind and infused by his spirit 
Notice what it also states here in Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 284. There are those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ who have never died to self. Why did they never die to self? Because they have never fallen on the rock and have been broken. And who is that rock? That rock is no other than Jesus Christ. They have never fallen in love with Jesus. And this is why their, their self, their, their old nature, has never died. And we see, we see, it's not until this shall be that they will live unto self. And if they die as they are, it is forever too late for their wrongs to be righted. Brothers and sisters, that's sombering. What Christ wants to develop in us is a new character, a character that reflects his love and his goodness. You see, Jesus' love is the only way that our stony hearts can be broken. It's until we see his love for us that allows our carnal nature to be broken up and allow the spirit to do its work. This is why Testimonies of the Church, Volume 5 says, Humble yourselves before God. Make an earnest effort to empty the soul temple of all rubbish, all envyings, all jealousies, all suspicions, all fault findings. Cleanse ye hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You see, what we have to come to God, we must come to him humble. We must come to him making an earnest effort to say, Lord, I realize that I have all of this rubbish in my heart. Remove my envying. Remove my jealousy. Remove my suspicions. Remove my fault findings. Cleanse my heart, Lord. I'm tired of being a hypocrite. I'm tired of pretending to be something that I am not. I'm tired of being double-minded, being something outwardly, but inwardly I know that these things are true. Lord, brothers and sisters, what God wants is our all. God wants all. Why? Notice what the following quotation states. We cannot be half the Lord's and half the world's. We are not God's children unless we are such entirely. Steps to Christ, page 44. God will not be trifled with. Christ accepts no divided service. He asks for all. Whoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple, according to Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Why does God want all? Because he gave all. You see, when we go back to the story of the rich young ruler, when he told the man, give all that you have, sell to the poor, and come and follow me. You see, Jesus wasn't asking him to give up anything that Jesus didn't give up himself. Jesus is the creator of the world. He was on a throne. He had angels adoring him day and night. He, was the, he, he is the creator and he has mansions and everything to his liking. He lived like a king in heaven. And yet when he decided to save humanity, he took, he, he took off the, the kingly robes and put on the garments of nasty human flesh. And he came and became a servant, a slave. And he humbled himself to the point of death. And so when he told the rich young ruler, rich young ruler, sell all that you have, what God was telling, what Jesus was telling him to do wasn't anything that he hasn't done already. God wants all because he, des he deserves all because he gave up all. This is why we see that it states God will not occupy a divided heart or reign from a divided throne. Every idol that holds the affections and diverts them from the God of love must be the throne. And so the question is, what idols are you possessing in your heart? What idols are you holding that's, that's drawing your affections and diverts you from the God that loves you? You see, idols are things that hold our affections and our dear hearts away from God. So what are you holding? Could it be 
PlayStation? Could it be your video games? Could it be your love for sports? Could it be your food? Could it be your relationship? Could it be your, what could it be? Your career, your education? What is, what are you holding on to? What idol are you showing so much affection, so much desire, and it's ultimately diverting your love or diverting your mind from the, receiving the love of God? Brothers and sisters, those are the idols that God wants to remove. He cannot occupy a heart that has an affections on the things of the world, but at the same time wants to show an affections to God. And so, brothers and sisters, where do we find this? We find it at the cross. You see, God will continue to love us. He will continue to draw us. He will do whatever he can to bring us to full surrender, but he cannot save us unless we go all the way with Jesus. And it's at the cross, brothers and sisters, that we see his love for us, his love penetrating our hearts, realizing that he has done so much for you and I, realizing that he's constantly drawing us with his love, realizing that he's given me a gift of guilt so I can run to him, realizing he's given me a desire to repent from the sins that I have committed, giving me the ability to confess, to be restored, renewed by him. This is why young instructor says the following, let no one think that Christ, can be satisfied with one little corner of our hearts while we allow Satan to erect his throne within. The fill of our moral atmosphere with defilement. Christ will abide in the soul only when the whole heart is given to him. We must surrender every idol and give our hearts to Christ. Everything that, uh, that draws us away from God everything that we're showing our affections and our love towards that is not directing us back to God, we must surrender it to him. And you may be thinking to yourself, oh, that's so extreme, Loami. Everything? Christ wants all because he gave up all. But listen, I realize that sometimes we may not understand it uh, in theory up here in our head, so practical explanations are always good. So I want to leave one with you here. You see, <coughs> every woman that I know of, is always anticipating for that great day where they can finally put on their beautiful white dress and marry the man of the dreams. And so I'm going to give you an illustration, and we're going to call uh, Bob and Sue. Is that all right? Bob and Sue. You see, Bob and Sue grew up together. They went to elementary school, and, and they were kind of friends all throughout, but Bob wasn't a very attractive guy. Sue was always a pretty girl, was always a popular girl in school, in middle school, uh, and all the way to high school. But after high school, they kind of left and they departed, they went to college, and, and lo and behold, life kind of brought them back together. And it was 10 years after they graduated college. And Bob saw Sue, and, and Sue saw Bob, and as they went to a, a place to go hang out and eat, Bob recognized Sue, and, and he approached her, and he said, Sue, is that you? And she says, Bob, oh my goodness, I haven't seen you since, wow, since high school. How's life been treating you? And as they were sitting there and conversating and, and catching up on old times and how they, you know, how family has been, they realize that both of them have been single. And you see, Sue looks at Bob and says, you know, Sue, Bob wasn't that good of a looking guy growing up. But now, you know, he, he put on a little bit of muscle and, you know, got some nice little smile. And, and, and so Sue was checking out Bob and Bob always had a little thing for Sue. And so eventually they said, hey, it's good to catch up. Let's do you mind if we go on a date? And she said, Absolutely. So they went on a date, and, and, and as time progressed, things got serious, and he, Bob asked Sue to be his girlfriend, and, 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 and Sue was just like, wow, this is, Bob is amazing. I never realized that the man of my dreams was somebody I knew all the time, or, or, or ever since middle school or elementary school. And so as a year went by, Bob had this desire to 
asked Sue to be his wife. And so they went back to the very first place that they met after, so long, after being departed for so long. And so, you know, he sets up the arrangement. He, he set it up nicely where, where he finally asked Sue to be his wife. And Sue says, I do. And there was a great response by family, friends, and everyone that was there. Bob and Sue, after so many years, are going to be married together. And so, you can imagine, right? The wedding, the wedding is going to take place. All of the, uh, uh, the, the decorations and, and getting the building and getting the perfect cake, the perfect wedding dress. And, and you know, Bob is finding his groomsmen, his best man, and, and, and they're waiting for this date to take place. And finally, they, the, the big day has come. They finally come in the wedding, the day that, that they're finally going to uh, uh, make vows together and spend the rest of their lives has finally come. You see, Bob was sitting there waiting, waiting for his beautiful wife to come. And so um, I usually mess up this illustration because I always use the wrong tune. I used the graduation tune last time I did this example. But, but the wedding song starts playing and, 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 and Sue is walking down with her beautiful dress. And everyone is just in awe of Sue. And Bob, you know, he's trying to be a man. He's trying to toughen up. But, you know, but you can see a little tear coming down from his eyes. And he sees and, and there the pastor is saying, dearly beloved, we gather here together. And you know the whole spiel. And so Bob, he unveils the, the face of Sue. And she looks so beautiful, natural, beautiful, beautiful girl. And Bob looks in her eyes and says, man, I'm about to spend the rest of my life with this girl. Never thought in a million years I will be marrying Sue. And so as the, 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 the pastor gives a vows. He says, Bob, do you take Sue to be your lovely, your, your lovely wedding uh, wife to cherish? And, and he says a vow. He says, I do. And Sue, as she's about to give her, uh, uh, as he's asked Sue the same question, right before she gives her vow, she says, wait one minute. And everyone, pff, the air is sucked out. She says, Bob, you know I love you. Never would I thought in a million years that you and I will be in this very moment. Bob says, yes, I never thought so neither. And, but Sue says, I have a confession, Bob. You see, last night I was a little nervous, you know, wondering, am I making the right decision? You know, that insecurity crept in, and so I decided to go out. And as I went out, I, I met Todd. You, you remember Todd? Yeah, Todd from, from high school? Yeah, Todd, you know, my high school sweetheart. Yeah, so we kind of caught up and, you know, reminisced on the good times and told him that I was marrying you. And he was surprised. And, and, you know, we had a good time. And, well, Bob, I must admit that one thing led to another. And last night we, we slept together. Oh, can you imagine Bob's heart at that moment? Oh, can you imagine the congregation? The wedding? Oh, everyone is just <gasps> shocked, heartbroken, devastated. And Sue is there crying and saying, man, I made a mistake, Bob. It was just a one-night thing. I promise you that I will give you all that I have. And so Bob has a decision to make. Bob has to think, am I willing to spend the rest of my life with someone who just cheated on me the night before our wedding? But you see, Bob had a great love for Sue. Like Sue will never fully understand how much Bob loved her. And Bob says, you know what, Sue? I'm willing to forgive you, but understand that you can never see Todd again. She said, yes, yes, absolutely. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make this marriage work. 
And I know you're such a reasonable guy and you're a great guy. And, and, and we kind of concluded because we knew that, that this is going to be a little awkward moving forward. But we decided that, that, that Todd and I, we're only going to meet one day out of the week. I'm going to give you six days, but I'm going to give you one. <laughs> Can you imagine Bob's face? Huh? Yeah, yeah, just one day. I'll give you six whole days, and I'll just give Todd one. Bob says, no, that's not going to work. And then we see that Sue says, okay, I, I, I knew that, that was, I was asking for a little too much. Okay, I, I figured I will give you six days and 21 hours out of the week. I just need three hours for Todd a week. Bob is thinking to himself, woman, have you lost your mind? <laughs> you just cheated on me the night before our wedding. And she says, yeah, I know. Okay, last Last proposal. I will give you six days, 23 hours, and 30 minutes. And I just want 30 minutes with Todd. Brothers and sisters, my question is this. What should Bob's response be? His response will be simply this. It's either all or nothing. If you want to make this marriage work, there is no way that you can see Todd ever again. And so it is with God. God desires all of us to give him, uh, to give us, uh, to give for ourselves, to give our hearts to him. And yet we have the audacity. We have this proposal that we're saying, Lord, I will give you six days out of the week. Just let me get, just give me one day to do what I want to do. Let me just commit this sin 30 minutes out of the week. Just 30 minutes. I will give you the rest of the week to you. Just give me 30 minutes. And we look at God and we give him that same proposal and say, Lord, I know you love me. Lord, I know you're willing to do everything for me, but just give me 30 minutes with my sin and I'll give you the rest with you. What do you think God's response should be? It's either all or nothing at all. You see, this is why Review and Herald states the following. A partial surrender to truth Give Satan opportunity to work until the soul temple is fully surrendered to God. It is the stronghold of the enemy. You see, we can't just give God 90% of our hearts and 10% to ourselves. Once we give Satan the opportunity, any opportunity, anything that may separate us from God, any idol that we may cherish that is giving us our, that, that we're spending our affections and our love to, gives opportunity for Satan to work in our lives. Bob says, you can't continue to hang out with Todd because if you were able to sleep with him the night before her wedding, what makes me think that giving 30 minutes of your time to him won't completely destroy our marriage? You see, until the temple of our hearts is fully surrendered to God, not partially, but all, every aspect of our lives, we still give a stronghold to the enemy. And this is why Satan does not want anyone to see the necessity of an entire surrender to God. When the soul fails to make the surrender, sin is not forsaken. The appetites and passions are striving for mastery. Temptations confuse the conscience so that true conversion does not take place. You see, Satan's, one of Satan's major deceptions is to, believe, to, to make us believe that we do not have to fully surrender everything to God. You see, once we fail to surrendering our sins to God 
and do not give them every aspect of our lives, all of a sudden we start having a confusion of ideas and the true conversion never takes place. You see, partial surrender is Satan's way of deceiving you and I. And this is why we see in Review and Herald, it states, the Lord cannot purify the soul until the entire being is surrendered to the working of the Holy Spirit. You and I can never get to where, we, where, where Christ desires us to get to if we do not surrender our entire hearts to him. So what are we holding on to? Could it be our occupation? Could it be our family, our friends, our career, school, our jobs? What, what is it? What is it that we're holding on to that we're not fully surrendering to Christ? Because if we just give partial obedience, partial surrender, in reality, we haven't fully surrendered. We must give Jesus our entire hearts. Notice what it says in testimonies. He demands all. Why does he demand all? Because he gave up all. Notice, when we are brought to yield to his claims and give up all, and not until then, will he throw around us his arms of mercy. But what do we do when we give up all? A sin-polluted soul for Jesus to purify, to cleanse by his mercy, and to save from death by his master's love? What are you really saying when you're saying, Lord, I'm not willing to give everything to you? Well, what are you really surrendering to God? A sin-polluted heart for Christ to be able to cleanse? Like, like, what are you really telling the God who loves you unconditionally, the God who sacrifices love, who has poured out all of heaven's blessings towards you? What is keeping you and holding you? And what is so important about your sin-polluted heart that you're not willing to give to Jesus? Jesus demands all because he gave up all. He done everything to show you how much he loves you. Yet we have the audacity and the gall to say, Lord, I see what you have done, but I love my heart more than I love you. This is why Ezekiel chapter 18 states the following, repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. But the question is, why would he die? God has given you this gift of repentance. He's asking you to turn away from your sins, from your transgression. Why would you allow sin to be your ultimate ruin? Cast all of your sins, your transgressions. You have transgressed. But why would you continue to go down this path when it's only going to lead you to death, to sorrow, and to misery? When I'm willing to give you a new heart, I'm willing to give you a new spirit. And God is asking you the question, why would you die in the condition you're in? What will Jesus do for us when we surrender all? Brothers and sisters, it's not until we see a revelation of the love of Jesus and the cross that we are able to fully commit to him. It's not, it's not until we understand his love for you and I that we are willing to fully give our hearts to him. So many times we want to, but we love our sins more than we love him. God understands that. And he knows that you are struggling to surrender. He knows. But what he's asking you of you today is come to him just as you are. Talk to him just as a friend. Tell him your struggles. Tell him your needs. Tell him your wants. And as you behold the cross, all of a sudden that, that cross becomes glorious. That cross looks 
something much more important than anything else that this life can offer. And as we look and behold that cross, all of a sudden I see that he loved me, he died for me, he forgave me, and not only that, he gives me the gift to repent from this life of sin, and not only that, he gives me the power to be able to live a life that I can never imagine I could live. Brothers and sisters, it wasn't until I saw the cross that I saw my worth in his eyes. You see, I was pursuing the things of the world six years ago. I was sitting there doing what I wanted to do, pursuing basketball and pursuing uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 what the hip-hop and rap and music and all these things had to offer and women and, and, and liquor and, and, and parties and all of these things. And, and I, thought I, was a big sell, uh, I thought I was a big shot. You know, I used to call myself the Prince of Orlando. But Christ says, how about you work with the prince of princes and the kings of kings? You want to limit yourself to Orlando? How about I broaden your horizons? Brothers and sisters, only by God's grace I'm able to even speak to you right now. You see, Christ wants to develop something in us that we don't even see in ourselves. But when we have hope that Christ can do it, when we have faith in his word that he will accomplish it, then the cross becomes that much more meaningful. So the question is, are you willing to give him your heart? Are you willing to accept the gift of repentance to turn away from your life of sin? Are you willing to give him your all? He wants all because he gave up all. But it's only until we see the cross that we'll be able to fully acknowledge and see what Christ is willing to do and how he values us and sees us. Is that your desire? Is it your desire to receive the gift of repentance? If so, let us conclude with a word of prayer. Father, we just want to thank you again for allowing us to see the importance of repentance. And we realize that we cannot repent of our sins. You only give us a power to do so. It's a gift from you. And Lord, allow us to see our worth, allow us to see our need of you, allow us to behold the cross, allow us to see your wonderful face, and allow the things of this world to grow strangely dim as we see the beauty and the mercy of your son's face. We love you, we thank you for all that you have done for us, for we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.